I am Benjamin Chen, the editor-in-chief of High Rhythm. The December 2017 issue of High Rhythm is a focus issue on devices. It has a featured article entitled The Role of Interventricular Conduction Delay to Predict Clinical Response with Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy, written by Dr. Michael Gold and his co-authors from Medical University of South Carolina. An author interview conducted by Dr. Dan Maureen can be found on the www.heartrhythmjournal.com website. The objective of the study was to assess the association between interventricular electrical delay in CRT therapy and heart failure clinical outcomes. The data came from Pegasus, which was a multicenter randomized trial of patients undergoing CRT implantation. The cohort was divided at median RV-LV interval into short, which is less than 67 milliseconds, and long, or greater than 67 milliseconds subgroups. There were about 1,300 patients included in the study. The clinical composite score at one year differed between groups, with more patients improving and fewer patients worsening in the long RV-LV group. The multivariate analysis showed that the RV-LV time and the gender were independent predictors of this outcome. The authors conclude that baseline interventricular delay is a strong independent predictor of clinical response to CRT. The long RV-LV delay is associated with better outcomes. A second paper is entitled, A Worldwide Experience of the Management of Battery Failures and the Chronic Device Retrieval of the Nano-Stim Leadless Pacemaker by Lucky Reddy and his co-authors from University of Kansas. In October 2016, Senju Medical issued a worldwide alert of battery malfunction that caused loss of pacing output and nano-stim leadless pacemaker communication. The objective of this study was to report the battery failure mechanism and instance and the worldwide patient management, including device retrieval experience. Of over 1,400 leadless pacemakers implanted worldwide, there were 34 battery failures, occurring at about three years with no instance of associated patient injury. Analysis of returned batteries revealed an increase in battery resistance caused by insufficient electrolyte availability at a cathode-anode interface. A total of 66 or 73 or 90% retrieval attempts were successful. The authors concluded that as with standard pacemakers, leaders pacemakers can have critical battery failures. Chronic retrieval of leaders pacemaker is safe and efficacious. 
The next article is entitled Incidents, Predictors, and Outcomes Associated with Pneumothorax During Cardiac Electronic Device Implantation A 16-year review in over 3.7 million patients The paper was authored by Ogun Bayou and colleagues from University of Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky The purpose of this study was to determine the trends in pneumothorax incidence in the United States over a 16-year period and to determine whether pneumothorax is associated with increased mortality after adjustment of other factors. The data came from National Inpatient Sample of the United States. Among 3.7 million CIED procedures, pneumothorax occurred in 48,000 cases or about 1.3 percent. Pneumothorax was significantly associated with pulmonary complications, chest tube insertion, length of stay, and costs. Mortality was statistically higher in patients with pneumothorax, which is 1.2 percent versus 0.7 percent in patients without. The authors conclude that pneumothorax remains an important complication of CIED procedures and is associated with increased morbidity, mortality, and costs. The next article is Left Cervical Vagal Nerve Stimulation Reduces Skin Sympathetic Nerve Activity in Patients with Drug-Resistant Epilepsy by Yuan Yuan and her colleagues from Indiana University. The authors recently reported that skin sympathetic nerve activity can be used to estimate sympathetic tone in humans. In animal models, vagal nerve stimulation can damage the static ganglion, reduce static ganglion nerve activity, and suppress cardiac arrhythmia. The purpose of the present study was to test the hypothesis that vagal nerve stimulation suppresses skin sympathetic nerve activity in patients with drug-resistant epilepsy. The authors studied 26 patients with drug-resistant epilepsy, including six treated with vagal nerve stimulation. The signals from ECGD1 and 2 were filtered to detect skin sympathetic nerve activity. The authors found that patients with vagal nerve stimulation had significantly lower skin sympathetic nerve activity than those without vagal nerve stimulation. These findings are consistent with that found in the canine models. The next article is entitled Utility of Intracardiac Echocardiography During Transvenous Lead Extraction by Sadek and his co-authors from the Ottawa Hospital, Ottawa, Canada. The objective of the study is to define the utility of phased array intracardiac echocardiography, or ICE, during transvenous lead extraction. They studied 50 patients and were able to visualize the intracardiac binding sites in over 70% of the patients. Those patients were more likely to have complex extractions 
And in addition, lead adherent echo densities were found in 72% cases. Among them, 14% had bacteremia. The authors conclude that ice imaging during transvenous lead extraction can be used to assess the presence of lead binding sites. Lead adherent echo densities and procedural complications. However, this study did not have a comparison group or other data to show that the use of ice improves the procedural outcomes. The next article is entitled Instance and Predictors of Late Atrioventricular Conduction Recovery Among Patients Requiring Permanent Pacemaker for Complete Heart Block After Cardiac Surgery by Keo and co-authors from Cleveland Clinic, Ohio. The purpose of this study was to characterize the incidence and predictors of late AV conduction recovery among patients requiring permanent pacemaker after cardiac surgery. They studied 300 patients receiving pacemaker for complete heart block after cardiac surgery and followed them for four years. The authors conclude that late AV conduction recovery is not uncommon after cardiac surgery, occurring in one of eight patients within six months postoperatively. Preoperative AV conduction abnormalities were associated with decreased recovery, whereas female sets and the transient postoperative AV conduction were associated with increased recovery. The next article is entitled Predictors and Outcomes of Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Extended to the Second Generator by Lee et al. from Mayo Clinic. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the instance of appropriate ICD therapy after CRTD generator replacement. They studied 227 patients who underwent CRTD generator change at the Mayo Clinic. Approximately half of the patients no longer meet the guidelines indication for ICD use at the time of generator replacement. Of these patients, 20% had left ventricular ejection fraction improvement to greater than 50% at the time of generator replacement. ICD therapy for ventricular arrhythmia in the ischemic group was 18%, while no patients in the non-ischemic group received ICD therapy from the second generator. The authors conclude that improvement in left ventricular ejection fraction after CRTD generator replacement is associated with significantly reduced instance of appropriate ICD therapy. Ventricular arrhythmias is less likely to develop with normalized LV ejection fraction in non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. A potential clinical implication is that an ICD may not be needed in some patients whose CRTD has reached the end of life. 
perhaps a replace, replacement with CRTP or CRT pacemaker is appropriate for those patients. The next article is, is entitled To Retrieve or Not to Retrieve System Revisions with the Micra Transcaster Pacemaker by Groupman et al. from Yale University. The purpose of this study was to describe the system revision experience with transcaster pacing system. The authors studied approximately 1,000 patients and found the actual rate of revision at 24 months post-implant was 1.4%. This is significantly less than the rate of revision of 5% for the transvenous pacing system. Transcaster pacing system was disabled and left in situ in seven cases. Three were retrieved percutaneously, and one was surgically removed during aortic valve surgery. The authors conclude that overall system revision rate for transcaster pacing system at 24 months was 1.4%, which is 75% lower than that for patients with transvenous pacing system. Percutaneous retrieval was successful as late as 14 months post-implant. The next article is also about pacing lead removal. It is entitled Transvenous Lead Extraction at the Time of Cardiac Implantable Electronic Device Upgrade, Complexity, Safety, and Outcomes by Barakat et al. from Cleveland Clinic. The authors aimed at reporting their experience with transvenous lead extraction at the time of device upgrade. There were 503 patients with 719 leads targeted for, with extraction. The complete procedural and clinical success rates were around 97%. The major complication rate was 1%. The authors conclude that transvenous lead extraction at the time of device upgrade were successful in the vast majority of patients with a low complication rate. The next article is entitled Predictors of Ventricular Arrhythmia After Left Ventricular Assist Device Implantation, a large single-center observational study by Efimova at all from Leipzig, Germany. The purpose of this study was to determine the predictors of ventricular arrhythmias and their impact on mortality in LVAD patients. A total of 98 consecutive patients with an ICD and an LVAD were included. During the 12 months before LVAD implantation, 40% had ICD therapies. During the 12 months follow-up after LVAD implantation, 50% had appropriate ICD therapies. The authors found that pre-LVAD ventricular arrhythmias and atrial fibrillation predicted post-LVAD ventricular arrhythmias. Because only patients with ICD were included in the study, the data cannot be generalized to patients without ICDs 
or with acute heart failures. The next article is entitled Continuous Optimization of Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Reduces Atrial Fibrillation in Heart Failure Patients. Results of the Adaptive Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Trial by Bernie et al. from Ottawa, Canada. The goal of the study is to compare the long-term effects of adaptive CRT with conventional CRT pacing on the instance of atrial fibrillation. They found that over a 20-month follow-up period, 9% of patients with adaptive CRP, CRT and 16% with conventional CRT experienced atrial fibrillation for more than 48 hours. The authors conclude that patients receiving adaptive CRT had a reduced risk of atrial fibrillation compared with those receiving conventional CRT. Most of the reduction in atrial fibrillation occurred in subgroups with prolonged AV conduction at baseline and with significant left atrial reverse remodeling. The antiarrhythmic mechanism of adaptive CRT remains unclear. The next article is entitled Impact of Institutional Procedural Volume on In-Hospital Outcomes After Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Device Implantation, U.S. National Database 2003-2011 by Yu et al. from Mount Sinai Hospital, New York. They found over 400,000 de novo CRT implantations in the database. The results showed that lower CRT hospital volume was associated with worse outcomes, including in-hospital deaths, overall complications, and the lead revision. Another interesting finding is that nearly 80% of the hospitals had less than 46 CRT implants per year. A primary limitation is that this is a retrospective database study which did not have provider information. Nevertheless, these findings cause for the establishment of minimum procedure volume standards for CRT implantation. The next article is entitled Long-Term Outcomes of Prophylactic Placement of an Endovascular Balloon in the Vena Cava of High-Risk Transvenous Lead Extractions by Chen et al. from University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. They reported 21 patients with a balloon prophylactically placed in the vena cava during lead extraction. There were two minor complications and one cardiac tamponade during the procedure. During the study period, which included six months follow-up, the authors observed no acute or long-term adverse outcomes associated with prophylactic placement of an endovascular balloon in the vena cava of patients undergoing transvenous lead expression. These data suggest that this novel endovascular balloon may be a safe addition to the extraction procedures. However, 
because this is not a prospective randomized study, whether or not the balloon improves the outcomes will need further studies. The next article is a review paper entitled Sudden Death Mechanisms in Non-Ischemic Cardiomyopathies, Insights Gleaned from Clinical Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator Trials by Steinberg et al. from University of Utah. This review discussed the background of sudden cardiac death in non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, its potential mechanisms based on experimental and therapeutic models, and the evidence for these mechanisms that can be derived from clinical trials of ICD therapy. The next article is entitled Association Between Oxidative Stress and Atrial Fibrillation by Tahang et al. from Emory University. Systemic oxidative stress can be estimated by measurements of circulating levels of aminothiols, including glutathione, cysteine, and their oxidative products. They studied approximately 1,500 patients and found that the increased oxidative stress measured by the redox potentials of glutathione is associated with prevalent and incident atrial fibrillation. It remains unclear if treatment that reduces oxidative stress can be useful in managing atrial fibrillation. The next article is entitled Atrial Ectopy as a Mediator of the Association Between Race and Atrial Fibrillation by Christensen and co-authors from UC San Francisco. Blacks have a lower risk of atrial fibrillation despite having more AF risk factors, but the mechanisms remain unknown. PAC burden is a recently identified risk factor for atrial fibrillation. The purpose of this study was to determine whether the burden of PACs explains racial differences in atrial fibrillation risk. The authors followed 900 patients over, over 11 years. Black race was associated with 42% lower risk of atrial fibrillation than whites. The baseline PAC burden was 2.10 times higher in whites than blacks. There was no detectable difference in PVC burden by race. PAC burden mediated 20% of the adjusted association between race and AF. The authors conclude that on average, whites exhibited more PACs than blacks. And this difference statistically explains a modest proportion of the differential risk of AF by race. The differential PAC burden without differences in PVCs by race suggests that identifiable common exposures or genetic influences might be important to atrial pathophysiology. A limitation of the study is that only a 24-hour holder was done to evaluate the prevalence of PACs. 
Therefore, some arrhythmic episodes might be missed. A set, second limitation is that the mechanism by which PACs are more frequent in black rays than in white rays remain unclear. The next article is entitled Clinical Recognition of Pure Premature Ventricular Complex Induced Cardiomyopathy at Presentation by Penilla et al. from Piacenza, Italy. The purpose of this study was to identify the clinical pattern of patients having a pure PVC-induced cardiomyopathy at presentation. They performed a procedure, a prospective multicenter study, included consecutive patients with left ventricular dysfunction and frequent PVCs submitted for ablation and follow-up for at least 12 months. Of 81 patients in the study, half had a successful sustained ablation and did not have normal uh, normalized left ventricular ejection fraction, and these patients were classified as PVC worsened non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. The other half of the patients who had normalized left ventricular ejection fraction were considered as having pure PVC-induced cardiomyopathy. The PVC-induced cardiomyopathy group had a higher baseline PVC burden, smaller left ventricular end diastolic diameter, and a shorter intrinsic QRS. The authors conclude that almost half of the patients with frequent PVCs and low left ventricular ejection fraction of unknown origin normalize LV ejection fraction after sustained PVC abolition. These patients who had PVC-induced cardiomyopathy can be identified before ablation. The results of this study may help clinicians select the most appropriate patients to undergo PVC ablation and improve the outcomes of the procedure. The next paper is entitled Heritability in a SCM5A Mutation Founder Population with Increased Female Susceptibility to Non-Nocturnal Ventricular Tachyarrhythmias at Sudden Cardiac Death by Terbeke et al. from Maastricht University Medical Center, the Netherlands. The author found a 16-generation founder population with a specific mutation associated strongly with QTC prolongation and electromechanical window negativity. The electromechanical window is defined as a Q-onset to aortic valve closure minus the concomitantly measured QT interval. A negative number means that QT interval was longer than the mechanical systole, which ends at the aortic valve closure. Overlapping phenotypes including conduction delay and Bugatta syndrome were discovered. Female gender is an independent risk factor for cardiac events. The authors also found significant heritability was observed for PQ interval after accounting for the mutation effect.
In conclusion, this SCN5A mutation founder population had phenotypic divergence and overlap syndrome. There is additional genetic variance for PQ interval hidden in the genome not explained by this variance. The paper was accompanied by an editorial from Dr. Peter Schwartz of Milan, Italy. He explained that the founder populations are characterized by a single ancestor affected by the disease under study and by a large number of individuals and families all related to the ancestor and carrying the same disease-causing mutation. As shown by the present study, the founder populations provide an excellent model to study the genetic basis for cardiac arrhythmias. The next article is a review article entitled The Evolving Role of Ankirin B in Cardiovascular Disease by Kunish and Muller of Ohio State University. Over the past decade, Ankirin B has been identified as a prominent player in cardiac physiology. Human ANK2 variants that result in Ankirin B loss of function are associated with Ankirin B syndrome, a complex cardiac phenotype that may include bradycardia and heart rate variability, conduction block, atrial fibrillation, QT interval prolongation, and potentially fatal catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. In this review, the authors summarized known roles of Ankirin B in the heart and the impact of Ankirin B dysfunction in animal models and in human disease, as well as highlight important new findings illustrating the complexity of Ankirin B signaling. The next article is entitled, When and How to Target Atrial Fibrillation Sources Outside the Pulmonary Veins a practical approach by Dr. Amang Chu from University of Michigan. This article provides practical instructions on how to perform these procedures. This article is also a CME article. In addition to the above articles, the journal also published a Josephson and Willens ECG lesson and four EP news. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. I'm Dr. Peng Shen Chen for Harvard.